Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at chapter 9 this morning, continuing in chapter 9. And we're going to concentrate on verses 18 to 27 this morning. Luke 9, 18 to 27. We're in the middle of our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. Last week, Pastor Calvin led us through Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000. We saw then, if you were here or if you heard it, that far from being a simple story about the generosity of a small boy with a few fish, the feeding of the 5,000 is actually about Jesus Christ. Specifically, the account reveals to us that Jesus is the shepherd king who provides everything that his people need. In fact, this question about who Jesus is is something that has dominated the passages that we've been covering for the last several weeks. And today, we're going to see the first human declaration of Jesus' true identity in the great confession of the Apostle Peter. And so please stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then, they said to, then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our great God and our loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you as needy people. Lord, we lack what we need, Father, and so we look to you, our dear Father, the great shepherd. Lord, we ask you that you would give us ears to hear this morning, eyes to see, hearts that are receptive to the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would take this message Lord, take the truth of your word and drive it deep into our hearts. Write your word upon our hearts and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would leave here today changed, more like Christ. Lord, more ready to serve him. And we pray this to his glory and in his name. Amen. You can be seated. So we come to a passage this morning which Luke has really been preparing us for for some time. This serves as one of the main climaxes 
for the larger section that we've been working through over the last several weeks, in fact. If you remember, all the way back in chapter 8, starting in verses, verse 22, there is the scene of Jesus calming or stilling the storm. And at the end of that account, in verse 25, the disciples are stunned by Jesus' authority, his power to calm the waves and the wind. In that section in verse 25b, it says this, and they were afraid, the disciples, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Pastor Calvin has shown us that it's this question that drives the sections that follow it. Who then is this? Jesus' true identity is the issue. And it's this question that's repeated multiple times in these sections. And finally, today, we see it raised again by Jesus himself. So the first thing that we see in our passage that I want us to consider is the identity of Jesus, the Messiah. The identity of Jesus, the Messiah. Look at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So the question, who is Jesus? Who do the crowds in particular say that I am? Notice Jesus is alone with his disciples. He went to pray. And whenever in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus prays, something very important is about to happen. And so Jesus asks them, what are the popular opinions about me? They reply and give him a list of different rumors about his identity. In verse 19, they say, and they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. These same three options for Jesus' identity were mentioned earlier when they reached Herod and caused him so much confusion back in our chapter in verses 7 to 9. This speculation about who Jesus was was actually very, very natural for these Jews to make. First, they knew John the Baptist. They heard his powerful preaching. They knew about his call to baptism and his radical repentance. He was a very strange character. The Jews saw the wild look that he had. They understood uh, even something about his miraculous birth to the aged Elizabeth and Zechariah. And so they see Jesus at the same time. They see him doing remarkable things, preaching in power and healing the sick. And so the assumption was that maybe this man is John back from the dead. And so it makes sense. It's a, there's logic to it. Or they thought maybe he's Elijah. Remember that Elijah was prophesied in the Old Testament to return in the last days. Malachi 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, again, when the people saw Jesus, they saw his mighty works, they knew that he had a very strong prophetic presence, they saw his powerful preaching, and so they thought, maybe it's Elijah. But Jesus, as we know, has already made clear that John the Baptist himself actually was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. Those prophecies of Malachi, of Elijah coming, were fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist as he paved the way, as he prepared the people of God for the coming of the Messiah. So, they were wrong about that. But the final option given by the crowds was that Jesus was just one of the other prophets of the Old Testament. 
Now, in the years between the, the end of the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a lot of speculation from the Jewish people about who was going to come to save them. They were under the oppression of so many different nations. Finally, the Greeks and now the Romans. And they were looking for somebody to come and help them in the midst of those oppressions. And so, there was speculation among these non-inspired writings that perhaps Jeremiah, the strong prophet Jeremiah or Isaiah would come and actually aid the people in the midst of their oppression. And so there was this expectation that maybe a prophet would come. And as they're seeing Jesus, they think, well, maybe he's not Elijah, but maybe he's just another prophet because certainly there is power in what he is doing here. But ultimately, as we know, the crowds were wrong in their speculation about who Jesus was. And I think it's helpful to see how they were wrong when we look back at chapter 7 of our passage, or excuse me, of our text here. If you would turn with me in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 7, we see John the Baptist's own question to Jesus here. He sends his messengers with a question. So in chapter 7, verse 18, in this section, Jesus has just healed the centurion's servant. He's raised the widow's son from the dead. And in verse 18, we read, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to them, to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John is asking Jesus here a very specific question. Are you the one who is to come? That is, are you the Messiah? Are you the one whom God's told me was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Or, he asks, are you actually somebody like me? Are you a great prophet sent to pave the way for the one who is to come? And that is what the crowds thought Jesus was, just one of the great prophets. The difference then is between the supporting characters who point the way to the coming king and the king himself. John the Baptist and Elijah, Isaiah and Jeremiah were all magnificent, great prophets. John the Baptist was the greatest of prophets of the Old Testament, Old Covenant era, but they were not the king coming to save God's people. Now, in verse 20 here of our passage, we come to one of the climactic points in all of these passages about Jesus' identity. Jesus asks a second question of the disciples. Look at verse 20. He says, it says, Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Of these two questions that Jesus just asked, this is the decisive one. And the tension, the real tension of this verse comes when we wonder, are the disciples going to confess Jesus' true identity, or are they just going to affirm the opinions of all the crowds? And Peter, as he often does, he takes that representative role for the rest of the disciples. He steps forward and makes the good confession, saying, you are the Christ of God. Now, the word Christ, as we know, it means anointed one, or in Hebrew, it's the Messiah. The Old Testament promised the Messiah. It said that he would be a royal figure in the line of David who would bring God's reign of peace to the world. He would bring justice. He would judge the nations and bring a time of flourishing. Peter 
And the disciples here are therefore confessing that Jesus is not just a great prophet, some supporting character in God's work of salvation. They're saying that he is the Messiah and Savior himself, the one in whom God's final salvation comes. Now the essential truth that they're confessing here is the utter uniqueness and preeminence of Jesus above all others. Now, as we read Jesus' question here, we, we only read it correctly when we see it not just addressed to the 12 disciples at that time, but when we see it addressed directly to us now. The crowds said that Jesus was just a supporting character in the history of redemption. Notice what this meant. That meant that they were still looking for someone else to be the Savior at that point. They didn't see in Jesus the Savior, the Messiah. And this is always the way. When we get Jesus wrong, when we ascribe to him any identity that is less than the Messiah, less than the King and Savior, then we're going to go looking for salvation somewhere else, somewhere where it can't be found. Now think about how this happens today. Many people will say that Jesus is a good man. He's a wonderful teacher, but really that's about it. They say, certainly not divine, and God doesn't really give salvation through him any more than he does any other great teacher, like Confucius, the Dalai Lama. That's who he is. But in our hearts, we know that what we need is something more than a teacher to save us. We need a king who can care for us through all of our needs. And we need a priest who can take away our sin and guilt. And if we don't see Jesus for all that he truly is, then we'll go looking to something else, to someone else, to a false savior, to care for us, to somehow take our guilt away or blunt the force of it. And so if we get Jesus' identity wrong, our hope for salvation shifts away from him to things that can't actually save us. But what about those of us who do confess with Peter that Jesus is the Messiah? Here, surely at Bull Street Baptist Church, we have this right. But if we think about it, how often do we relegate Jesus to some supporting character in our hearts and in our lives? Most of the time, we know that this happens in really subtle ways. We live in a fallen world, and so if we seek to live in integrity, we're going to receive opposition from the world. We're going to have to be tempted to compromise or to cut corners as we try to walk faithfully with Christ. Because if we don't, we will inevitably lose something that we value. It could be financial gain, it could be prestige, it could be peaceful relationships in the home or at work. But if in these moments we see Jesus as just a helper not the one who can actually care for us in our family when we walk in faithfulness to him, then what we'll do is we'll take matters into our own hands and we'll compromise. And so without the true knowledge of Jesus as king, as savior, then we give in to temptations like these because we don't put our full trust in him. A helper can help, but we would never put our full trust in somebody who is just a supporting character. 
So we have to get Jesus right. At other times, we remember that Jesus is a savior, but we think, my life is such a mess, he can't possibly fix all the damage that I've done. It's beyond what anyone can do. I know Jesus loves sinners, but how can he forgive sin as bad as mine? How can he clean a heart that is so helplessly full of sin as mine? In each of these cases, we fail to recognize Jesus for who he is. So who is Jesus? Peter has confessed it. He's the Messiah, the King, the Lord, the Alpha and Omega, the Good Shepherd. Remember, we've seen from the last several sermons, Luke has shown us that the Messiah, Jesus, has absolute authority over everything that could possibly threaten his people. He is the Lord over all the chaos of nature. He has dominion over all demonic forces. He has power over all physical illness and even over death itself. He's the good shepherd who feeds and cares for his children, for all of his people, and he has authority to forgive all of our sin. When we get Jesus' identity right, really right in our hearts, when we see him on the throne where he really is, then we are at peace. We're satisfied in his glory rather than our own. We have confidence that we can walk in faithfulness and obedience to him in trying times, knowing that he will care for us. And therefore, we can experience the joy of eternal life with him right now. This is what the knowledge of the true Jesus does for us. And so the first thing we see in our passage is the identity of Jesus, the Messiah. The next thing we see is the suffering of the Messiah. The suffering of the Messiah. Look at verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So immediately after Jesus, excuse me, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he tells them not to let anyone know about his true identity as Messiah. And I think this is very puzzling to most of us when we see it. Why wouldn't Jesus want people to know his true identity at this point? But we have to keep in mind the nature of the expectations of the Jewish people at the time for who the Messiah is. They saw him. What they were expecting was a political, a military Messiah, a military leader who would come, rise up against their Roman occupiers, and start a revolution. If word got out that Jesus was the Messiah, his true ministry as Messiah, which needed a lot of correcting in the minds of the people, would be threatened by those misunderstandings. There would be pressure on him to lead a nationalistic movement. And so Jesus charges his disciples not to tell anyone about his true identity. Now notice though, the reasoning that he gives that they should not tell anyone. Immediately he says that it's that he had to suffer many things, be crucified and raised on the third day. This is the key reality of Jesus' true messiahship that was left out completely in the Jewish expectations about him. What he's saying is that Jesus, the great Messiah King, was also the suffering servant that we see and read about in Isaiah 53. 
In that famous passage, it says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus came as the king with authority, but his mission as the Messiah also entailed the necessity of him being rejected and suffering in the place of his people in order that they would be set free. Now look at the specific things that Jesus knew that he had to undergo. In verse 22, he says that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These three groups made up the Sanhedrin, the judicial body of the Jews, the ones who tried Jesus and caused him to be put to death. And Jesus explicitly mentions that he would be killed. It strikes me so often just how specific Jesus' knowledge, of course, was about the coming of his death. He knew exactly what he would have to undergo. In all this, Jesus is revealing to his disciples that the Messiah, the King, had to also take the path of the suffering servant. Now, while that's the case, notice how the glory of the Messiah is still in place throughout this entire thing. Look at the final point in verse 22. What happens? He will be raised. Now look down at verse 26, read this with me. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The King will receive his glory. The issue is that that comes only after he would be crushed for our iniquities so that by his wounds we would be healed. And so Jesus' entire ministry, he's revealing to the disciples here, will be one that must take the shape of the cross. And this would be shocking to the ears of the disciples. In fact, we see constantly, Luke's gonna show us that they still did not understand it. It was hidden from them, the reality that Jesus was going to have to undergo this kind of suffering. In verses 23 to 27, Jesus continues to teach, but we see him no longer just speaking to his disciples. His dialogue directly with the, the disciples there is finished, and now we see him speak to all. And so we saw the suffering of the Messiah. Now, let's read 23 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Notice how this passage, which describes the path of the followers of Jesus, the difficulty that they will undergo, it comes immediately after Jesus' prediction of his own suffering. What this shows us is that the path of suffering that the Messiah must walk is the same path that his disciples must follow in. And so this brings us to a third thing in our passage that we see, the cost of following the Messiah the cost of following the Messiah. Now this cost is set in a context here. 
There's a reason for it. And it's the opposition that the world has to Jesus himself. That's why there is this cost for his followers. Jesus was persecuted by the Jewish leaders. Why? Because he called out their pride and hypocrisy. He was the light of the world. And what he did was expose the dark, the wickedness that was hiding in the dark in this way. But Jesus also, in Matthew 5.14, calls his disciples the light of the world. They're the ones who reflect the light of Jesus. And in doing so, they expose the evil in the darkness as well. We don't like to have our sin exposed. We will do anything by our very sinful nature. We will do anything to keep people from showing us who we truly are, showing us the wickedness that is in us. And therefore, we persecute those who shine that light on us. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 explains this principle. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? They slandered Jesus, saying that he was the prince of demons. That was how he was able to cast out demons. Of course, they're going to slander his people. Persecution, therefore, and suffering will characterize the life of the faithful believer, the faithful follower of Jesus, just as it characterized the life of Jesus himself. Now, Jesus describes for us here what it takes to be his disciples. Verse 23 says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is, let's look at the, the different things about the conditions that Jesus gives for coming after him, for following him. First, he says, let him deny himself. One author described this as denying personal control of one's life. Denying self means that we submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ in all things. And this entails a readiness to give up the things that we value, our comforts, our desires, our good standing in the world, and at times even physical life. And this leads us to the next point of discipleship here. Jesus says that his followers must take up their cross daily. Now the cross, what is it? It was the instrument of execution back in Jesus' day. Notice that a person who takes up his cross is the person who has already been condemned to death and is on their way to execution, just like Jesus had to carry his own cross to his execution. Somebody who is walking with his cross has already been condemned to death. I. Howard Marshall describes this point very helpfully when he paraphrases the verse. He says, let the disciples take up the position of the man who is already condemned to death. Hence, the saying refers not so much to literal martyrdom as to the attitude of self-denial, which regards this life in this world as already finished. It is the attitude of dying to self and sin. The point is that we must live in constant readiness to give up the things of this world if faithfulness in Jesus requires it. When we begin, I think, each of us, when we begin to really examine our own habits, when we examine our lives, the routines that we go through in each day, we're going to realize that there are some things that we're holding on to that hinder our faithfulness to Christ. For some of us, 
It could be some form of recreation that we enjoy so much that we spend too much time on. We put too much of our energy in that could be used for looking at Scripture, for caring for the people of God, for attending to the means of grace in this way. Or for others of us, it's a concern for appearance. We want to come across as impressive to our neighbors, and that has so dominated our priorities that our service for Christ is an afterthought. Jesus is calling us here to be ready, to be willing and ready to give these things up for the sake of following Him. In the next verse, Jesus elaborates on this point, and in doing so, He helpfully gives us greater insight into why a disciple would want to follow such a difficult path for his sake. Look at verse, verse, excuse me, verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is telling us here that whoever t- keeps a tight rein, keeps a tight hold on their life and does not deny himself in submission to Christ, they will actually lose what is most valuable. True life, eternal life, can only be enjoyed if we die to self for the sake of Jesus. Notice then that the fundamental question is what is truly most valuable? And this is what the next verse, verse 25, expands on. Let's read 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. The implication is that you may be able to gain the entire world if you, if you do not follow Christ sacrificially. But in doing so, you'll lose something even more valuable than the whole world. You, you lose yourself. The point of this verse is simple then. Gaining the whole world is not worth losing the true life that you would gain if you followed Christ. Jesus then immediately ups the ante in the next verse. He sets the whole discussion in the context, not just of this life, but of the next, of final judgment. Look at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him, the Son of Man, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The person who is ashamed of Jesus here is the one who can't bear to be rejected by the world the way that Jesus himself is. They therefore deny any association with him, exactly the way that Peter did during the trial. They don't want to be associated with him. Notice here that Jesus and his word are tied together. We can't have Jesus without having his word. It's very simple. If we reject one, then we reject the other. But the ashamed person here, then, is one whom the Son of Man will be ashamed of in return. Jesus uses his favorite title for himself here, the Son of Man. The title comes from the book of Daniel, as we know, from Daniel's visions about the future age of judgment and restoration. In those passages, beginning in chapter 7 of Daniel, we see the Son of Man coming in judgment. He's given a kingdom and absolute dominion over all the nations. He comes to judge the nations. When we see the Son of Man coming, 
This serves to heighten the seriousness of the passages. It, refusing to follow Christ, refusing to do so sacrificially, refusing to deny the self to follow him, has consequences in the future when the suffering servant comes again, this time in glory and judgment. Now, this brings us to the final verse of our passage. Here we see a shift away from the focus on judgment. And this offers his true followers, Jesus' true followers, great hope. Verse 27 says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He's telling his disciples that in contrast to those who would receive judgment, some of those standing with him at this moment will not die until they see the kingdom. Knowing that, this will bring great encouragement. Knowing that the disciples here will be with the Messiah as he brings his kingdom in visible power, that would give them relief in the context of this dire discussion of judgment that Jesus has just undertaken. Now, Jesus seems to have in mind some specific event, event that makes visible the kingdom of God here. He doesn't specify which event he has in mind, but it's likely that he's referring to the very next section, the transfiguration. If you remember in that event, which we're going to look at next Sunday, the glory of Christ is revealed to Peter, James, and John. They get this amazing glimpse at the majesty of Jesus that will be displayed when he comes to consummate his kingdom on earth at his second coming. And so Jesus explains that some of those standing, some of those with him at the time, will be able to see the kingdom in a powerful, visible way before they taste death. That is to say, some of his disciples will not face the judgment that he just described, but they will actually participate with the Messiah in his coming as the Son of Man in judgment to bring glory and peace to the world. So as we think about this entire passage, what we notice, of course, is that at the very forefront is the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. We're still getting clarity about the true identity of Jesus. He's the Messiah, but as the Messiah, he is the suffering servant who had to undergo rejection and the cross. And his disciples must follow him by walking this cross-shaped path with him. This is the fundamental nature of discipleship as we know. But for the Messiah and for his followers, suffering is not the last word. He is the king greater than David. He will soon return in glory and he will return as the conquering Lord at that point. And now we his people are called to take up our crosses daily but we do so knowing that when he returns, we will share in his glory forever. So we say with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we praise you for your majesty. And Lord Jesus, we look forward to your coming when you would come as the conquering Messiah once again, delivering your people from all that oppress them. Lord, we look to you for your help. Lord, please continue to drive your word, the truth of your word, into the hearts of your people. Lord, aid us as we worship you. Lord, help us to respond in true faith to the truth of the gospel. And allow us to glorify you and to proclaim your name in word and deed to the watching world. 
We pray this to the glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.